Hello and welcome to the JCBC Podcast. My name is Sean and I'm so grateful that you found our podcast. Listen, the JCBC Podcast is a collection of several sermons that have been preached over the years at Johns Creek Baptist Church. I pray that as you find these sermons and you listen to them, they would meet you where you are in your journey. And I trust that God will do something in these words to lift up your head, if only for a little while. So go ahead and subscribe to us and follow along. Welcome to Leviticus. I told you it was coming a few months ago after I got home from a sermon planning retreat. I go away with a friend of mine once a year, Doc Hollingsworth down at Second Ponce, and he and I spend the week in silence, really, for most of the day, working on our own plans and discerning where the the Lord is asking us to, to say something that matters in the coming year. And that week, I said to him about midway through, Doc, I I think I know what I'm going to do. I told him about it, and he said, are you crazy? Have you lost your mind? And that's all I needed. And so I got home, and I, no kidding, went home and picked up my son Jackson from something to drop him off. And on the way home, he knew what I was doing, and he said, so how'd the retreat go? I said, it went well. Do you know what I'm doing in January? He said, what? I said, well, you know, I've done all of Genesis, and I've preached all of Leviticus, and before I, I mean, all of Exodus, rather, and before I could even finish, he said, Dad, no. <laughs> no, no, Dad, seriously? No. Um, Dad, people are going to leave the church. That's what he said. Yeah. I got home from dropping him off. No kidding. I went to my wife and I said to Laura, I said, hey, babe, you know what I'm going to do in January? I've got the plan. I, I really sense this is what God is wanting us to do. And I said, she said, what's that? And I said, well, you know, I've done all of Genesis. And before I could even get to Exodus, she said, no, babe, seriously, no. She said, babe, you're going to get fired, all right? All right, so Leviticus comes with a suitcase of assumptions that all of us bring with it. I'm going to ask you to turn to Leviticus chapter 1 right now, and as you do, it's the part of the Bible that may have the spine that's not quite cracked like the rest of your Bible. It may be the, the part of your Bible that has pages without thumb smudges on the edges and margins because we assume some things about this ancient text We assume that it's old, it's primitive, it's antiquated. It it talks about detail after detail of ritual instruction, the sacrifice and slaughter of animals. And we, in our sophisticated 21st century situation, look back at a primitive work like that and say, what possible relevance can the book of Leviticus have for any of us? And I get it. I mean, it's filled with some details. In fact, Leviticus is that place where if you set out to try to read the Bible all the way through, Leviticus is usually where you stop. I mean, if you can make it through the end of Exodus, through like 15 chapters of details at the end of Exodus about the tabernacle, uh, you got to do that with what we call kind of an elastic consciousness. You just kind of keep reading, keep reading, keep reading. But when you make it to Leviticus, if you've made it through all that, you hit what one writer referred to as the Levitical wall. (laughs) And you're like, I'm done. Let's move on to a story or something more exciting. And I get it. It's true. A lot of that's in there. But... 
If you hang with me, if you go with me these next few weeks, I want to possibly reintroduce a new love for this ancient text that may make more transformation in our hearts than we could have possibly ever imagined. Let's not forget, this was Jesus' Bible. This was the Bible of Jesus. This is where it shaped him as a child. This is where his teachings began to emerge out of his understanding and his interpretation of the Torah. And at the center of the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, and Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right in the middle is Leviticus, almost at the apex of the Torah. And Jesus, if you and I look at this ancient text through the interpretive lens of our Lord, I think we may be in for a surprise or two. There are two reasons I want us to do Leviticus. All right, two reasons. Why I want us to dig deep. And the first reason is this. It's there. It's there. I mean, it's in the book. And we as Baptist people have been known over the centuries as people of the book. Because we believe in the authority of sacred scripture. We gather ourselves around this book every week. And we say, what wisdom does it have that can shape the doing of our lives? And because it's in there, we ought to know what it has to say. Otherwise, you know what we could do? I could say, all right, everybody, turn to the first page of Leviticus, and one at a time, let's just rip it out. (laughs) In fact, I did that once. I know that probably doesn't surprise you. But as a youth pastor years ago, uh, as Fitzgerald would have said, in my younger and more vulnerable years, (laughs) I stood in front of a large youth group, and, and and they were complaining about the stuff we were studying. It's boring. Let's get out of this boring part of the Bible into something exciting. And I said, okay, I got an idea. Let's turn. And I had an old Bible. I found an old one that was kind of in the closet somewhere. I said, Leviticus, rip. I ripped it right out of the Bible. Their eyes were as big as saucers. But then, and I was going to make the point, well, if you're not going to read it, just take it out. I was going to make the point, but it backfired because after I ripped out Leviticus, these teenagers were like, yeah, let's do numbers. I can't stand that book. Bring it out. So it didn't work, and I'm not going to do that today, but I'm here to tell you it's in there. And, 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 And I really mean it when I say this. We have a long heritage at Johns Creek Baptist Church that we must nurture and cultivate, and that is we will be a biblically literate people. I want my children and I want your children and grandchildren to grow up in a congregation in which we not only know how to name the books of the Bible, but we know something about the content of those books so that we know something of the large sweeping themes of Scripture that give rise from one work to the next work and why it's all in there in the first place. So the first reason is it's there. The second reason is really the whole point of the whole series. The second reason is this. I gave you a little bit of a a preview in this trailer that we sent out. You know, at the end of the day, Leviticus is written for a band of ex-slaves. 
newly freed slaves from Egypt, and they have left the Egypt order, and now their lives are in disorder. And so the book of Leviticus is about how do you reorder your life in God in this newfound freedom that God has provided. And that's, and that's great. They had a new world they had to figure out and a new way to live in that world. And the reason I want to study Leviticus is because there are some days when I wake up and I don't know what world I'm living in anymore. Where everything that used to be right is now wrong. And everything that used to be wrong is now just kind of okay. And everything that was of principle and value, all the ethics of Jesus Christ that have given us shape and identity over the millennia are now just kind of negotiable. If there were ever a time when the world needs to be reordered in God, it's now. This is why we are in Exodus or in Leviticus. You know, to get into this study in just a moment, I want you to know that on our way into this study, you will see in your worship guide the reading for the following week. That means next week, if you look on the bottom of your worship guide, you'll see what chapter I'm preaching. It's chapter 1. I want you to go home and read all of chapter 1. It will feel laborious. You will feel like you need coffee. You, 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 it, but read it. Every day, read the same chapter. And next week, you'll have a new assignment so that we're all in the same rhythm. Capiche? All right. To get into our study today... I want to give you some handles to hold on to. So there are three things we got to talk about. Today we've got to talk about Vaikra, the power of prequel, and Old Testament Easter eggs. Vaikra, the power of prequels, and Old Testament Easter eggs. Let's pray together. God, even now at the beginning of this study, we recognize and we confess to you that we have gathered into this place from a variety of places, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, relationally. And, and, and Lord, we, we bring to this moment everything we've been carrying around, some with a little bit of exhilaration, some with a little bit of exhaustion, some with great hope and others with deep hurt. But during this time of study, when we are focused and our hearts are fixed, we pray that you would surprise us once more. We pray that your Holy Spirit, which is alive and among us, would say something, do something, evoke something in us that so transforms us that we cannot leave this place the same way we came. We pray these things in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Vaikra. Vaikra. The first word of the book of Leviticus is Vayikra. Uh, literally, in the Old Testament tradition, the Hebrew tradition, the Hebrews, the Israelites, the, the Jews, will, will name the book according to the first word in that book. 
And the first word in Leviticus is vaikra. Now, you and I call Leviticus Leviticus because we inherit that from the Latin version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And, and there we understand that it's a kind of a, a manual written for priests, giving priests all the instructions on how to run worship, how to do the rituals. And it's given to the priests who are called the Levites, so we call it Leviticus. But the ancient practice among the Hebrews was to name the sacred writing according to the first word in that writing, Vayikra. Now, one of the pleasures that I'm having during this, this, these days, during this sermon series, is in recent months I've become uh, friends and am becoming fast friends with a neighbor in town, Rabbi Jordan Ottenstein. He is the rabbi at um, uh, Congregation Dor Tamid here in Johns Creek. And he and I hang out, we do our thing, and, and through this series, he and I are, are committed to every week studying the book of Leviticus together. Last week we gathered for the first session, he brought out the Hebrew, and we had a great, a great time together. But a few months ago, when I, I tried to, to tell him what I was up to, a few months ago I said, hey Jordan, dude, what I'm doing in January, you're not going to believe it, I'm going to preach Leviticus. Uh, yeah, and then I tried to impress him with my like very clumsy Hebrew, and I said, I'm doing Viacra. <laughs> and he, he said, Viacra. See, Vi- Viacra would be a very different sermon series altogether. It was kind of <laughs> totally different topics, different things to read. Viacra. Vaikra is, is the first word in the sentence. And as we read it in Leviticus chapter 1, verse 1, these are the words that we read. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent. The first few words there, the Lord called, is Vaikra. Literally, you can translate the word Vaikra. It's, it's more of a bundle. It's like a phrase, really, than, than a word. You can translate it, and God called. Vaikra. What's unique about Vayikra, this very first word in the book of Leviticus, is that usually in the Hebrew Bible, when when God speaks, there's another phrase that's used. Davar Adonai. Davar Adonai means, and God spoke. And God spoke as if unilaterally to speak something. And God, Davar Adonai, spoke to Noah and said, build an ark. And God spoke this into being and spoke that into this person. It's definitive, it's declarative mostly. But at the beginning of Leviticus, it's not Davar Adonai that's used. It's Vaikra. Vaikra is a different word altogether. It is not a declarative God called. It is an invitational God called. It's really more of a summons. Come, draw near to me, Vaikra. You are welcome to come near. Now, this is groundbreaking because right now, Moses, who is hearing this like a, ah, like a trumpet blasting throughout the cosmos, Vaikra, what God is saying to Moses, Moses is in, in uncharted territory at this point. Because even before when he's on Sinai with God, there's this separation between the two. But this time God is saying, come, I want you near me. 
Now, it gets even better than that. The word vaikra in most texts, most uh, scrolls, most manuscripts, it looks like this. Here's, uh, here's a, a text of the first few verses, first verse of Leviticus. Keep in mind, you read from the, from the top right, you read from right to left. So if you look to the top right of your screen, that first word is vaikra, and here's a close-up of it, but I want you to notice something specific here. Notice the very last letter. That's the letter on your far left now. That letter is the letter Aleph. Aleph is the first letter of the Hebrew alphabet, but you'll notice it's smaller than all the rest. Now, in many of the manuscripts, it's written with the same size font. It's, it's scripted in the same size. But in many of the more ancient manuscripts and scrolls, the, the, the small Aleph is written smaller than the rest of the word. Do you know why? According to Hebrew Midrash, the rabbis, the commentaries throughout the centuries say the reason there is a small letter at the end of Vaikra is because of a conversation that God had with Moses. God calls out to Moses and says, come near, I want you near me, draw near, I'm summonsing you. And Moses protested. Moses said, I can't come, what, what, are you cra- have you lost your, I'm not coming close to you. Who am I? I'm not worthy. And the humility of Moses speaks for itself. It says, why me and not everybody else? I'm nothing more than these people. And they argue a bit. And God compromises with Moses and says, I'm not, I don't just want you. I, I want all of you, all of the camp, all of your people, and all of humankind to draw near to me. So as a sign for future generations, we'll write this this last letter, the, the silent Aleph, smaller as a reminder that I'm talking to everybody. Now, why does that matter? Because I want you to know that when you and I start this study of this ancient, out of date, irrelevant, primitive text that somehow has nothing to do with any of our lives, I want you to know something. From the very smallest letter of the first word, of the first phrase, of the first verse, of the first chapter of this book, it is a cry of God to say, you are wanted. I want you near me. Vaikra. Could anything be more beautiful or more urgent than that? You are Wanted. I want you near me. And as we start this study, I just want to acknowledge a fact among us. There is somebody sitting on this campus in the sanctuary, in the Family Life Center, somebody sitting at home watching this far away from where we are, and you have convinced yourself that because of who you are or where you've been or what you've done or how you're wired or what you seem to be missing, that somehow there is no place for you near anything holy or divine or good or right. And you even ask yourself, how did I even get here today? I don't even deserve to be here. God does not welcome me. I'm telling you that from the very first syllable of this ancient text, the message is you, you are wanted. You are welcome to draw near with God, Vaya.
Why would God start the word that way? Why would God be up to that? Well, I'm glad you asked me. Because that moves us into the second movement of this study, which is the power of prequels. Now, you know what a prequel is. It's where you have a movie, and it's a great movie, and then you make another movie, but the, that the setting of the movie takes place before the time of the first movie. And it's meant to fill in the gaps of questions that were asked in the first movie or set of movies. Now, I've told you before, I was a person like many of you raised in the Star Wars generation. And all of my childhood was shaped by the images and the possibilities and the imagination of Star Wars, that first three movies, the first trilogy. But despite uh, the quality of the prequels that came out, despite the debate about whether they were worthy or not, the fact is we spent most of our childhood and into even my early adulthood with unanswered questions. Why does this guy wear a mask? And, and what's with the cryptic references to, like, clone wars? And, and how can Obi-Wan be his instructor? He just struck him down. And how can he be the father of Luke? What does that even mean? Until the prequels, a whole generation later, come out. And it attempts to fill in the missing pieces. That's the power of a prequel. Over the Christmas break, my family watched... Um, the Godfather movies, and, and like a hundred hours of Godfather. I mean, not really, but, but we watched, and, and, and everybody knows that Don Corleone, he's a, he's a tough guy. He's a tough guy. But it wasn't until the second movie, which had really some segments that were prequelian, really, flashbacks that filled in the gap. How did he become who he became? Well, it tells the backstory. I'm telling you. That Leviticus, if we are to understand the significance and the power of what it means to hear the Lord of the universe say, Vaikra, come near me, we have to understand what has already happened in the prequel to Leviticus, which is the prequel called Exodus. Now, last year I did a series on Exodus, 26 weeks in the book of Exodus. I refer you to our website if you missed any of those, but you know what happened in this prequel, don't you? Exodus begins, and the Hebrews are content and fine, and they're growing, they're being fruitful, they're multiplying, and a new Pharaoh comes to town who doesn't know and have any affection for them, and he's driven by this interior fear, a sense of ego and narcissism, and he uses his power to oppress the Hebrews. He sees them multiplying and it scares him. So he enslaves them and chapter 1 of Exodus describes the harshness of the labor that they went through. They were enslaved in bondage primarily for a particular project. The building up of two storage cities. You can read about it all in chapter 1. Pithom and Ramses. And in these two storage cities, do you know what a storage city is all about? In order to understand Vaikra, you got to know that at the beginning of the prequel, Exodus, these storage cities are being built up. 
Egypt is in a fertile crescent, an area where they can grow and harvest all kinds of grain and all kinds of uh, agriculture. So they store up everything they can. They, 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 they store all they can. They can all they get, and they sit on their cans. <laughs> and there they are, and they're storing up these two storage cities so that in the years of drought, when the countries around them who are desperate and need relief, they come. And it's a very wise, frugal way to set that up, but it's also a way to maintain control and power because I don't want you to miss an important part of the prequel to Vayikra, and it is this. The world in Egypt was being set up in such a way that there were those who at the top of the system in Egypt had access to an ever-growing accumulation of more and more and more and more, but it was being built upon the backs of those who had nothing. The accumulation of the Egyptian um, uh, privileged was built upon the backs of the Hebrew nobodies, the slaves. In many ways, you might think of it like this. This is the way Egypt ordered the world. That's a metaphor that I want you to hang on to through the rest of our series together. Because if Leviticus is about a reordering of life in God, we have to know what kind of order was in place that got disassembled. The Egyptian imperial order of things was this. Egypt stacked people from perceived importance to perceived irrelevance. There was an ordering that put those with perceived value on top and those who had perceived little or no value at the bottom. They stacked humankind like the Titanic where first class is on top and steerage is at the bottom. Be mindful, my sisters and brothers, not to stack people in your hearts. When you stack people, according to perceived value in your heart. When your family stacks people, when a church stacks people, when a nation begins to stack people and order it in such a way as to give greater value to the top and lesser to the bottom, you arouse the wrath of God. And God sees what's happening in Egypt. And he feels the the weight of those who are stacked at the bottom because in chapter 2, we are told that God hears their groaning, their crying. This is what the text says. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out. Out of their slavery, out of the slavery, their cry for help rose up to God. God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God looked upon the Israelites and God took notice of them. Do you know what we could do? I could spend the rest of 2019 and form a sermon series that is exclusively dedicated to the cries of Scripture. Do you know that the Bible that you have in your hands or on your lap or in your phone, the Bible is crammed with story after story of a God who hears the cry. Cain rises up and kills his brother Abel. And God says, Cain, do you not know that the blood of your brother 
cries out from the ground, and I have heard it in Genesis, we see Abraham throw away his handmaiden Hagar, the Egyptian who was pregnant, had a child, and he's done with her now. She goes to the wilderness and cries, and God hears her cry. All of the Psalms and all of the prophets of the Old Testament are filled with stories about this God who hears the cry of the oppressed, the widow, the orphan, the resident alien, and in the seasons when Israel, God's people, no longer hear the cry, God punishes his people. We move to John chapter 9 and Jesus, our Lord, is walking through a town and there's this blind man crying out and no one hears but Jesus hears. The Bible is punctuated again and again with the cries that God cannot not hear. And the Bible ends in Revelation with this glorious vision of a day when he shall wipe away every tear from every eye and there will be no more sorrow, no more suffering. Why? Because God will have heard the cry of humankind. At the beginning of the sequel, or the prequel, at the beginning of the prequel called Exodus, it starts with a God who hears the cry. And I love what Golden and Bell say about this. When it comes to following this God and being faithful to this God, the question so much is not about what we believe and how we behave as much as it is about can you hear the cry? Can you hear the cry that God hears from those who are stacked at the bottom of the order of Egypt? So God hears them and delivers them. He calls Moses. You know how the rest of the prequel goes, right? He calls Moses to go to Pharaoh and tell Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may worship me. What's worship have to do with any of this? They're all slaves. What are we supposed to do? And he calls them to worship because sometimes our enslavement seeps into the soul. The Hebrews began to believe that the way things are are the way things are meant to be. They look up and they see statues to Pharaoh and assume that the king must be um, God-like. So nothing is going to change and God wants to pull them into the wilderness in order to worship, in order to provoke the soul to consider that the way things are is not the way things are meant to be. God sends plagues. You know these stories. One after the next, frogs, pestilence, locust, turning the river into blood. And he sends plagues to act like a wrecking ball to systemically dismantle the infrastructure that had stacked people from top to bottom. And he leads them through the Red Sea and through the wilderness, a period of questioning in which they ask themselves, oh my gosh, this is great. We're set free from the old order of Pharaoh and the imperial stacking of our value. But now, even though we're set free... There's this disorder, and we don't know how to put things back together, and there's a questioning. There's always a questioning. When we are set free from the thing that enslaves us, do we really want to be free? So God takes them to Sinai, and you remember this story. And he says, I'll be your God, and you'll be my people, and this is what this is going to look like. Here's some Ten Commandments. Here's a book of covenant. And here are some blueprints 
for a big tent, a big tabernacle that I want you to construct for me so that I may abide with you and go with you in the journey that you make. Now, right here in the prequel, as we are leading toward Vayikra, if we are to understand all the significance of the power of God's word saying, come, I want you near, I want you, Vayikra, come near me, we have to understand that when we get to chapter 25 of Exodus, and God has delivered them from the old order, and now all in disorder, he gives them instructions to create a tent of meeting. We have to understand that the details of that tent of meeting matter more than we can possibly know. And that leads us to the last movement, Old Testament Easter eggs. Because from chapter 25 through chapter 40 of Exodus, we get one detail after the next about how to place things in this tabernacle where the people will be with God. Now, you know what an Easter egg is, right? I mean, an Easter egg is you've got a movie, and sometimes a writer will script something in the movie that is maybe a cameo appearance or a word or a, an actor from another movie just as an homage, so to speak. It's, an, it's hidden there, right there. you got to look for it. For example, George Lucas, who wrote uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark and Star Wars, when he did Raiders of the Lost Ark, for example, here's a great picture of Indiana Jones about to open this big case. It's a great moment in the movie. And all around him, he's surrounded by hieroglyphics. This is Indiana Jones, the, 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 the movie, right? These Egyptian hieroglyphics, if you zoom in, uh, has a picture of another character, C-3PO and R2-D2, from Lucas's other film that he had written or co-written, uh, Star Wars. See, it's an Easter egg. It's hidden there as, as a bit of a clue, a clue. You may know Alfred Hitchcock. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock was famous for his cameos in all of his episodes, all of his movies, all the films that he did. He would show up in some way. He might be walking past a window in the background. This guy here is reading a newspaper, and it's Alfred on the front page. You know, he just made this Easter egg appearance. I'm telling you that in the prequel called Exodus, when God gathers this discombobulated group of ex-slaves and says, I want you to build me, a tabernacle, and here are the blueprints. He crammed the blueprints with Old Testament Easter eggs. Because in seven speeches, God gives detailed, explicit direction. I want you to put this thing here and that thing over there. I want you to put the, the altar here and the wash basin there. I want you to put the menorah this many feet in and, and the table over here and the incense should go there. And you should weave the curtains of this kind of material and drape it this way, detail after detail. But it comes in seven speeches from God. And the seventh speech that comes from God is a speech completely dedicated to Sabbath rest. Now, where have you heard the pattern of seven acts of creating something and the seventh one being about rest? But in the other prequel called Genesis. In the beginning of Genesis, there is this creation poem that starts out with seven acts of creation. And God said this and it was. And God said that and it was seven times with the very last one being the creation of a day of rest for God. 
Why is any of that important? Because when the writer of Exodus is setting up Leviticus, when he's, when he's setting up the instructions of the tabernacle, he is deliberately using language that is meant to be an Easter egg. It's meant to be exactly the same kind of language used at the creation of the world because the creation of the tabernacle is meant to mirror the creation of the world. Almost verbatim. For example, in Genesis, we have these words, and God saw everything that God had made, and behold, it was very good. But in Exodus, we hear, and Moses saw all the work, and behold, they had done it. In Genesis, the heavens and the earth were finished. In Exodus, thus all the work of the tabernacle, of the tent of meeting, was finished. In Genesis, God finished his work, which he had done in Exodus. So Moses finished work. In Genesis, so God blessed the seventh day in Exodus, so Moses blessed them. Old Testament Easter eggs crammed in the blueprints of the tabernacle because the construction, let's say it this way, the creation of the tabernacle is meant to mirror the creation of the world. And why would God do that? Because in the tabernacle, there would be worship. And in worship, every time you and I gather for worship, everything we sing and everything we think, everything we feel, everything we hope and everything that we hurt, it all has the capacity to evoke in us a vision not of the way things are, but the way things were meant to be. These are called heptatic Patterns, patterns of seven. Every time you see patterns of seven, I want you to recognize it's an Easter egg that the writer is wanting you to think of the creation of the world because in worship, that's what we do. We create the world with God. So you turn the page to Leviticus and God calls out, Vayikra, come and be near. And then the reason this is important is because Leviticus is crammed with the same Old Testament Easter eggs as Exodus and Genesis. In Leviticus, this is what you're going to see over the next several weeks. In Leviticus, there are seven speeches about God, about sacrifices. There are seven acts of ordination. There are seven, there's a seven-day period to deal with impurities. There's a seven-day plus one purification ritual for diseases. Uh, there's a sevenfold ritual to cleanse the sanctuary. There's seven festivals, seven holy days, seven month observances, a seven year calendar called the Jubilee, and all of those are Easter eggs. And why are they there? It's not just because of the detail needed for the priests to run worship. It's there so that when you and I read them, we are being reminded what God is vaikra, calling us to is not just ritual, but to join God with the ongoing creation of the world. Vaikra, come near and let us reorder the world together. That's Leviticus. 
And maybe you are here today and, and, and you have never considered the possibility that God would ever want you to be near for any reason. I am here to upset your expectations. God wants you near. But not just to be present, but to be present. To come near and be with God, not for busy work, not, not simply to just take up space. God wants you to, Vayikra, come near to join with God because every time we gather, we are transformed and our transformation transforms a world that is slipped into chaos. And Leviticus invites us to fix it. Let's pray. God, this is far more than any of us can bear the, the, the call to draw near you. And yet here, Lord, is the mystery. Here is the scandal of it all. You call us to draw near you for the purpose of repairing the brokenness of the world, beginning with whatever brokenness may be inside us. And that is my prayer right now for my people on this campus and watching from wherever we're watching, that you would begin the work of repairing hearts and minds and relationships and finances and dreams and, and hopes, Lord, so that we may gather and draw near you and join you in the repair of the world. We pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. <laughs>